this morning. Kind of feels like winter is going to kick us in the teeth one more time here this weekend with this cold weather, but it can't hold out. It's going to fade away here soon. So uh, let's pray as we get going this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have uh, to look at your word, to hear from you. And I pray that as we spend this time together, that we would understand that this is you speaking to us through me, but ultimately we're looking at your word. And so uh, we want to hear what you have for us. So God, would you accomplish in these moments good work in our hearts? We pray also for everything that's going on in the children's wing as well, and pray that kids would hear the gospel, they would be drawn to you, they would respond to it, uh, and faith would be put uh, placed in you. And so God, uh, grow the faith, the collective, collective faith of this community uh, for your glory and for our joy. In your name I pray, amen. All right, this morning, uh, it's always fun for me when we can start a new uh, sermon series, and so that's what we get to do this morning. We are going to begin our slow journey through the Old Testament book of Jonah. So what I want to do this morning is I want to begin really high level and just look at kind of some historical context around the book. Uh, we'll do that really briefly, and then we'll get into some more specifics looking at the first couple of verses. So the book of Jonah, uh, it is one of the 12 minor prophets. And so when I say minor, I'm not saying it's less important. Uh, what I'm saying is it is a shorter book than some other major prophets that are found in the Old Testament. So there's 12 of these books in the Old Testament. And it's, uh, the genre is kind of prophecy, it's prophetic. He, Jonah was a prophet, and so when I say prophet, basically that says he is a mouthpiece of God. So God spoke through him to his people, uh, but, but it's kind of a prophetic narrative as well because it's, it's communicating a story. It's teaching a story through this book, and so there's history going on here, and we want to hear the history, hear the narrative, uh, but through the pro prophetic narrative, things are being taught to us as well, and so uh, we want to be instructed as we go through this time. Uh, this book uh, is concerning about the 8th century, uh, so uh, probably like 800 to 750 B.C. That's typically uh, thought when this was, or this is when this is uh, occurring. And so it's happening at a time in the life of Israel. So in 931 B.C., Israel split. So it, it became Israel and Judah, became two separate nations at that point in time and it just kind of has continued to decline over the years. So now we're about 150 years later than that. It has continued to decline while other nations around them, specifically Assyria, has begin, begun to grow in power. And so we're going to talk about Assyria quite a bit this morning, but this is also taking place uh, in the time of the kings. Uh, and so uh, there'd been a number of different people who've led Israel Throughout the course of their history, we've got Abraham and Isaac and Jake, Jacob, and these were people who were kind of looked at as kind of leaders within Israel. But then we, we moved into people like Joshua, and then there was judges, and, and these were kind of military commanders that, that God used to lead Israel. But now we're in this era of kings 
And so began with King Saul and then King David, and now the line just continues, and what we find is that the kings are continually getting more and more evil. They, they do evil in the sight of God. Okay, so uh, if you guys are interested in more of like the historical context of Jonah, you want to dig into more of that, uh, we're going to do some more work uh, this morning, but if you're interested in that kind of thing, I can talk with you, or I've got books uh, like this high if you, if you want to read books, and so I'd be happy to give you something if you, you're interested in that kind of thing. Uh, but we typically don't spend a ton of time uh, when we're introducing these books looking at that, because ultimately uh, we want to get to Jesus, and that's what we're going to be doing throughout this series as well. So what I want to do today, now given that kind of general high-level introduction, is I want to look at some main characters uh, in Jonah. And so we're going to do that by looking at the first two verses of Jonah. So if you've got a Bible, you want to flip there, or you want to, uh, you got a device, you want to swipe there, you can do that. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen behind me. So Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So when I said a slow journey through Jonah, I meant a slow journey. So we're going to camp right here, just these two verses this morning. So there's three parties I want to look at this morning. I want to look at Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. I want to look at Jonah, the prophet. And then I want to look at God as well. So let's start with Nineveh. So Nineveh uh, is the capital of Assyria. Actually, at this time, uh, in Jonah's time, it's not, but it's going to become uh, the capital of Assyria, and so it still held very significant sway in the life of Assyria. The population we read in chapter 4, verse 11 of Jonah uh, was more than 120,000. And so in that day, this is considered to be a very large city. Uh, and we read in chapter 3 that this city was so large that it would take three days to walk all the way across it. So this was a normal mode of transportation for people in that day was walking, and this city itself would take someone three days to walk from side to side. So when we think about Nineveh, w what we should think of is this is a very culturally astute place, like cutting edge, okay? Whatever that was at this time, it was cutting edge. It was a flourishing city. There would have been lots happening there. It would have been very cosmopolitan. So when you think of like a big inner city, uh, what goes on in that place and that time, like this, this would be cosmopolitan for that time. Now, during Jonah's life, Assyria and Nineveh were a burgeoning world power. Soon, they would become the most feared and powerful nation in the world. So there had been a couple of attempts by Assyria to overtake Israel, but they had been rebuffed uh, at this point in time. And so now uh, Assyria was distracted with some other battles, okay? So they're going after some other land, and there's a little reprieve for a few decades here for Israel. Despite that, Israel still feels them looming. They, they've attacked them already, and they know that they want to come and take their land and overrun them. A and so they still feel that Assyria is a threat 
to them. And, and so they're, they're fearful. They are fearful of the Ninevites and the Assyrians. A- and we could even say terrified. Israel was terrified of Assyria and for good reason. And let me tell you a little bit about why they were terrified. So Assyria, they found that intimidation was a very effective tactic to control uh, other people. And so what they did is they sought to come up with any ways they could to terrorize other nations so that when people heard about them, they would be filled with fear. So as they sought to uh, expand their land or their territorial expansion uh, going about this, they sought to do it as brutally as they were able to do. And honestly, the brutality is nauseating uh, when you get into some of the specifics of what happened within Assyria. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a flavor here of, of what happened within Assyria regarding this. So they would routinely decapitate soldiers. So defeat an army, take them prisoner, and just decapitate the soldiers. Uh, But before they do that kind of a thing, uh, when soldiers were alive at times, they would just rip their tongues out. Just rip them straight out. At times, they would also tie ropes to their legs and their arms. And they would pull those ropes so tight until their skin would come off. A- and then they would take that skin and they would display it on the city walls so that people were aware of this is who we are. Do not mess with us. They also were known for cutting off both legs and one arm of the soldiers they defeated so that then they could mockingly shake the hand that still remained of soldiers. They would burn alive children and women and those that were not brutally killed they would parade around with their loved ones heads on a stake they would force people their the people that they had captured to parade around with their relatives even heads on a stake Nahum 3 so Nahum is another minor prophet Uh, Nahum 3 is a pronouncement of judgment on Nineveh. So this is after the time of Jonah, okay? And this is what Nahum writes. Woe to the bloody city, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. So Israel's terrified, and for good reason. They know this, this is coming. This is the footsteps that they hear coming behind them, this is who it is. As I read these accounts this week, like I just became physically uncomfortable and and multiple times just had to stop. Like it is so gory what is going on here. And and honestly, there's so much more. But I think you kind of get the point, right, of what's going on here. It is grotesque. Nineveh was a wicked city. It was filled with evil. And the thing is, they were very proud of this. They even created art to depict what they would do to the people that they had captured to celebrate. So it's this city that God comes to Jonah and he says, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, now we have to understand, the things that I just described probably happened to some Israelites already, okay? These things could have happened to family members of Jonah. We don't know this for sure, okay? But, but they're in proximity here where this could have hit home very closely for Jonah. So Jonah gets this command from God to go to Nineveh, and there has to be almost like this, wait, wait, what? What are you telling me to do? Jonah has to be thinking when he hears this, that's a death wish for me, right? If I go to Nineveh, if I go and tell them that, I am never coming out of there. To go there is a for sure death sentence for me. Or maybe he doesn't die, right? Maybe he's tortured, or maybe, maybe that's not what happens. Maybe they listen. And what if they do listen? What if they see their need for God? These people that I hate, I have to call them my brother? Like, like they, we might actually be lined up in that way somehow? And so for Jonah, this is an unconscionable thought. Assyria had made these repeated attempts to overrun Israel. They're already bitter enemies. There is for sure hatred between the Israelites and Assyria. And we learn some interesting information about Jonah in another Old Testament book called 2 Kings. So 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. I want to read this, and then we'll talk about it. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Okay, so while Jonah was a prophet of God, there was this king in Israel named Jeroboam. And we read here that Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, okay? So he is commencing evil. He is leading Israel in the path of wickedness. And in the midst of this, Jonah pronounces a prophecy that Israel's borders would be restored. So their enemies had come against them, not just Assyria, but other enemies had come against them. They had beaten them back, and they no longer possessed the land they once had. But now Jonah is prophesying, he's saying, these borders will be restored. So where our enemies have closed in on us, we will push back, and we will gain the borders that we once had. Now what's really interesting about this is this is a message that God instructed Jonah to give to Israel. And he did. He gave this message 
to Israel. He didn't resist giving this message to Israel. He was glad to deliver this news to his people. The implication of this is that Jonah was a man who affirmed the expansion of Israel's borders. Okay? And it didn't matter if the success of Israel was in spite of God, was, would involve wickedness. Jonah was a prophet who cared about the military, political, and geographic expansion of his people, even if it is done through evil means. Jonah is very pro-Israel, probably to a fault, we could say here. The picture that's beginning to form here is one at least of patriotism, okay? So when I say patriotism, I'm, I'm saying devotion to or vigorous support for his country. He, he would be considered a patriot, all right? But I think the picture that we're also getting here is not just a patriot, but a nationalist, okay? So there is national support for Israel to the detriment and exclusion of other nations. Uh, almost, the idea here is that he, w as he looks at his country, his country can do no wrong, okay? It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how it hurts other people. Whatever his country does is right. Now, this began, begins to get even more interesting when we hear what some of Jonah's contemporaries or other prophets are saying about Israel during this same time frame, okay? Specifically, there's two prophets I want to look at. Uh, their names are Hosea and Amos, okay? So in Amos 7:11, we read there, For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Okay, so this, one, he's talking about the result of what Jeroboam is doing. The way that he is leading is going to cause him to die by the sword. But he's also talking about Israel going into exile. And the implication of that is that they're being overrun. Okay, so this isn't border expanding. This is border contracting here. And then Hosea chapter 7, verse 3, just a paraphrase. There we find Hosea condemning the present leader, specifically King Jeroboam, as he paints a picture of King Jeroboam where evil makes him glad. Evil makes King Jeroboam glad. Now, what all three of these prophets are saying, th though they differ in what they're saying, they contradict each other, all of these things that they're saying are going to come to pass. It's all going to happen. So it's not as though we look and say, well, God doesn't know what he's doing here, or there's a lie in here. It, it's all going to come to pass. It's all going to work together. But it's important for our purposes to note how Jonah is affirming what other prophets are condemning. Jonah affirms what other prophets condemn in terms of the leadership that's going on within Israel at this time. Jonah is less concerned with the evil that is transpiring in his nation. He is, he is fixated on the nationalistic efforts to expand borders and to seek to increase Israel's power and notoriety within the military realm at this time in the world. Okay, so now, coming back 
to God's instruction to Jonah to go to Nineveh, we find this to be a complex situation. Jonah has aspirations for his country. Those aspirations are in conflict with the aspirations of Nineveh. These are hated rivals. Jonah loves his country, and he wants it to succeed in advance. But now, God has called him to go to Nineveh and to make them aware of their evil. So this is shocking on two different fronts. First of all, God is sending a prophet to the Gentiles. So up up to this point in history, as God relates to his people, God's primary concern has been his people. Okay? He's cared for them. He's provided uh, for them. He's, He's gone to them. He's looked out for their well-being. He's given his commands to them. But now, he's sending a prophet outside of them to the Gentiles. So let's understand one more aspect here. We've really looked at the evil of Nineveh, right? The things that transpired in Nineveh are very evil. And I had mentioned earlier that Assyria had sought to overtake Israel. And Assyria will eventually overrun Israel. That's going to happen. Do you know why that's going to happen? It tells us explicitly in 2 Kings 17.7 why Assyria will overrun Israel. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So Israel is going to be overrun by this very evil nation because of their sin against God. Israel's sin was not small. It was not to be overlooked or to be diminished in any way. Their rebellion against God was just as heinous as Assyria's horrific acts. They rejected God. They turned their back on God. And so what we find God doing here is he saying, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And this is giving us a little hint of what's going to be full-blown through Jesus. When God's people, Israel, reject him, he will go to the Gentiles. He will go to those who are not his people, and he will save those who are not his people. He will make those who are not his people, his people. So the first shocking thing here is that God is sending a prophet to the Gentiles. The second thing here is that it's shocking that God goes to vile Nineveh, right? That, that he would choose to go to those Gentiles. Like, like, isn't there some other Gentiles that he could go to? Shouldn't the things that Nineveh is doing and Assyria, Assyria is doing, shouldn't that disqualify them? from having God come to them? I mean, what we read or or talked about earlier is so vile. Wouldn't that put them beyond God's reach? And so it's shocking, one, that a prophet is going to the Gentiles, but that those Gentiles are also specifically Nineveh. And so all of this brings us to the one orchestrating all of this. God. 
God is the one who has called Jonah to be a prophet. He's called Jonah to be a mouthpiece to Israel. And now he's called him to be a mouthpiece to Nineveh as well. God is the one whose word is powerful and means something. Notice, that's how this starts, right? God speaks to Jonah. So Jonah wasn't called to proclaim his own word, but to share the word of God. God is the one who knows Jonah better than anyone else. He knows what makes Jonah tick. He knows what his sin issues are. He knows what Jonah loves. He knows what Jonah hates. And he knows what Jonah needs as well. God is also the one who is greater than the great city of Nineveh. God knows exactly how evil Nineveh is. And as wicked and repulsive as Jonah might think Nineveh is, God knows their sin more than Jonah does. Jonah would look at Nineveh and he would say, I hate those people because of their sin. They are so wicked and evil. They're beyond God's reach. But as much as he thinks he knows their sin, God knows way more than Jonah knows in regards to their sin. God knows what Nineveh needs as well. Much more than Jonah thinks he knows what Nineveh needs. Jonah would think that Nineveh needs a sword. God says Nineveh needs a sermon. God knows all of the dangers involved in this process. He knows all of the possible implications. He knows that everyone would be completely shocked at his choice to send Jonah to Nineveh. You notice at the beginning of the book of, Ni of Jonah, there's no introduction given about Jonah. And the idea is that people know who this man is. They know what he's like. They know what he stands for. They know who Jonah is and what he's about. And God is choosing to send this man to Nineveh. He's saying this is the best way for us to move forward. And so at minimum, as we look at these first two verses, there should at least be intrigue, right? Like this is a good story. Why? Why would God do this? Knowing what we know here, like, it just doesn't make sense. Th this isn't a 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like, this doesn't add up. I'm sure none of us would choose to do things this way. We're going to find that Jonah wouldn't choose to do things this way either. So a few points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, God's word is preeminent. God's word is preeminent. We saw at the very beginning, it is God's word that is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. God's word is what is driving this story. And we could say God's word is what is driving everything. God called Israel to himself, and he gave them his word to be their God. 
he, through his word, instructed Israel to obey his commands, to obey his word. He verbalized judgment for disobedience through his word. Assyria destroyed Israel by the word of the Lord. Jonah is sent to Nineveh by the word of the Lord to preach God's word. We have to see the centrality here of God's word. It's the point of everything, okay? It's what's driving this story, and it's the goal of this story as well. So for us today, as we see that God's word is preeminent, we're confronted with God's word as well. We might disagree with God's word at times. We might dislike God's word at times. But none of this changes God's word. God's word is still God's word. And ultimately, God's word is good. We see the epitome of God's word in Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. We read this in John 1 verses 1 and 14. It says there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we see God's Word being displayed ultimately in Jesus. And this Word, Jesus, we need to understand, is greater than Jonah. So Jonah is helping to pull the story together, the the greater story of the biblical narrative, okay? But Jesus is greater than Jonah. We read this in Matthew 12, 41. Jesus speaking there, he says, something greater than Jonah is here, and he's talking about himself. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He is the ultimate fulfillment of what Jonah is talking about in this book. So the word of God, Jesus, sustains us. Right now, as as we breathe, Jesus is sustaining that in us. Jesus is the one who leads us into truth. He makes and keeps promises. Jesus, the word of God, comforts us, and he disciplines us. And he is profitable for us in every way. And so, the greatest word for us each day is Jesus. And the greater word that we speak to others is Jesus as well. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is the word that you and others need on repeat. It's the word that I need to hear over and over again. When it becomes mundane, when we feel like we know it, we understand it, we've heard it before, we need to hear the gospel again. We need to hear it more clearly. We need to see how profound it really is. So God's word is preeminent. Secondly, God's first response to evil here is grace. So often in when we read the, New, the Old Testament or when we just kind of have a picture of 
the Old Testament and God specifically, it, it's so easy, us, easy for us to view him as kind of this angry child, right? Like somebody set God off and well, now here comes the wrath, right? Like he's just going to pour that out. Here comes God's temper tantrum, right? And so there's this picture that the God of the Old Testament is just this mean, angry old dude who lost his remote control, right? And, and he wants somebody to find it for him. The reality is, God has put up with incessant evil from his people and from people who are not his own. Over and over and over, people rebel against him, sin against him. And notice his response here is grace. Now, I want to highlight this every time we see this in the Old Testament, because it should help us help shape our idea of who God really is. It's not like the God of the New Testament is full of grace. Look at this picture. This picture right here, he is sending his word. He is sending a warning to people who are rebelling against him in horrific ways. And he is chasing after them. He is warning those who are putting themselves in danger. God's grace is good and it is vast and it is not just a new testament reality this is who god is old testament new testament and and we need to read ourselves into the story at this point when we think of nineveh we should think kevin we should think ourselves if you find yourself thinking man, those are horrific people. I'm so glad I'm not like them. You're reading this wrong. God was going to a people who needed his grace. And it's no different than God coming to us, people who are in need of his grace. God hates sin, and he will judge it. But he is also slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We, we sang this earlier. God is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. He is unimaginably kind. Unimaginably kind. To the point, if we think about this for ourselves, right? If there's someone in our lives who is a Nineveh to us, like that's offensive, right? We're called to that and, and that's, our third gospel application point. Who is God calling you to? Who, who is Nineveh to you? We see how Jonah has this tendency to overlook the evil of his own nation and focus in on the shortcomings of those that he dislikes or disagrees with or, or that he's scared of. The reality is that God, in his kindness, will oftentimes put us in the very spot we don't want to be, that we don't want to be in, because it will expose the very thing that is killing us or endangering us. And, and when, when God does this, he's doing this graciously to expose us, to expose our pride, to expose our prejudices. So I, I just want to go through some questions here. And I want to give you guys a little space 
to just reflect and, and for us to ask God to, to poke us, to prod our hearts in this regard. Who do you think you're better than? Who do you think you're better than? Are you a racist? Do you think that there's people groups that you're better than? Are you a nationalist? Do you think that there's other countries that are lesser than because they, they don't have the education system, they don't have the financial resources or whatever? Is it hard for you to see things in our country that are wrong? Who do you think that you are smarter than? Who do you look down upon? Who do you tend to mock? Who do you tend to look at with smugness, with kind of a pompous little grin on your face? Or who would you take delight in God destroying? Who are you okay running over so that you might accomplish whatever you want to attain? Who is unimportant to you? Who don't you see day in and day out? Who don't you see? What sins of your own do you overlook or minimize as you see them in others? God called Jonah to the last place he wanted to go. The very last place that he wanted to go. Who is God calling you to that makes you uncomfortable? And the question is not if, if God were to do this. The question is, who is he calling you to? What are you afraid of getting exposed in your heart? God wants to take all of us to that point because we need it. Because you need that in your own life. So do the people that you're coming to, right? They, they need it, but you need it just as much as they do. The reality is, it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. Jesus loved the world, n not picking and choosing, okay? Love him, hate him, love her, hate her. If we like to pick and choose, if we want to serve a God who picks and chooses, do we make the cut? A and what's the line on that? What determines whether we're in or we're out? Friends, this is why we need the gospel to sink deep into our hearts. Why we need to understand what the gospel really is. How offensive it is that God loves us. That he comes to us. It's not because we look better than the Ninevites. It's not because uh, we didn't flay somebody's body, right? Jesus says that if you have anger in your heart, if you curse someone in your heart, that you're guilty of murdering somebody. And, and we're all guilty of that reality. We need the gospel to sink deep into our hearts so that we don't look at other people and think that we're better than them. So that we're not nationalists. That we're unable to see or be taught in our own lives or in the lives, life of our country. 
We need the gospel to change us, to change the deepest, darkest parts of who we are. Jesus was called to you, and he loved you, loved you and loved you, despite your sin and your clear disqualifications, and mine as well. He loves us in spite of our sin, or despite our sin. We need to see Jesus' kindness. We need to be changed by it. As Jesus says, as my Father sent me, even so I send you. To those that we may not want to go, to those who do not deserve it. For this is what it means to live out the gospel. We're going to reflect on this reality of Jesus and the fact of what he did for us so that we could be brought near to him. We're going to take a few moments to reflect on the fact that Jesus went to the cross, to reflect on Jesus obeying his Father's word to come to us and to save undeserving sinners. So we're going to take the the bread and and the cup, and we're going to reflect on the fact that rather than us having to go to Nineveh and have our bodies beaten, our blood shed for our sin, Jesus comes and he has that done to himself for us. And so we're going to take some time to just reflect on this expression of love uh, that, that there's none other like it. So it's a time for us to examine our hearts, time for us to confess our sins to God and to others and to reflect on how Jesus came to the messiest, most undesirable and undeserving people like you and I. It's a chance for us to pray about all of this, to pray with others as well. So if if you've never trusted in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, then this celebration isn't for you. But Jesus is, and Center Church is, and we want to invite you to believe in Jesus so that this celebration is your celebration, that you can join Jesus' family, his church. For those of us who have trusted Jesus as Savior, I want to invite you while the worship team plays to come down to take the bread and cup, which signify Jesus' beaten body and his shed blood for our sins. So uh, there's no, like, qualifications for this other than you are trusting in Jesus. You don't need to be a member here. Uh, You don't need to know a secret handshake or anything like that. And so as the worship team plays, we want to invite you guys to come and partake of this. You guys want to stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to lead us into this time. God, thank you for the Old Testament book of Jonah. Thank you for reminders that we get in there of your immense love. For reminders in there of how your word is preeminent and powerful, how you are driving everything by the power of your word. And I pray, God, that in these moments as we reflect upon the word who became flesh, 
Jesus, that we would be reminded of the greatness of his sacrifice and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Pray that we would understand your great love for us. And in that, as we understand it, as it changes us, that we then could see how we also are sent to others, to people who don't deserve it, to people who have disqualified themselves, and yet there's still hope. So God, help us to hear this call. Help us to see the beauty of you pursuing us and coming after us, and help us to be roped into this beautiful endeavor of going to others who need to see and to hear the gospel. Remind us of your goodness as we eat the bread and we drink the cup. We reflect on who you are as a great God. In your name I pray, amen.